Hello, everyone. This is Greg Drevenstead, Editor-in-Chief at Writer Magazine and your host for the Writer Magazine Insider Podcast. Our guest today is Peter Jones. Peter writes the Moto Life column in Writer Magazine, and he recently published a book called The Bad Editor, Collected Columns and Untold Tales of Bad Behavior. Peter has written for every major motorcycle magazine over the years, and he's worked for companies like Olin's, Nitron, and Pirelli. He's a former race team owner, and he set a 202.247 mile per hour land speed record on a production-based, normally aspirated motorcycle at Maxton Air Force Base. Peter, welcome to the show. Hi, yeah. how you doing? <laughs> yeah, that means now. <laughs> You're on the show now. <laughs> I was I was waiting for uh, a, an actual introduction, not like, "Hey, welcome." No, no, I I did I did I always do my intro before the call because if I screw up the intro, it always starts off the interview poorly. So I figured I would record it before you got on the line, and then we could just go off to the races. So here we are. We're we're now we're we're not live. We are recording, but uh, you're in New York. I'm in California. So uh, I see that you have a cup of coffee, and so do I. So we're well caffeinated. Well, that's the confusion. I'm drinking decaf. Oh, shouldn't have said that. <laughs> you don't have to admit to that. <laughs> <laughs> so um, as I said in the intro before you got on the recording, um, you write the Moto Life column for Ryder. You started in the January. No, what issue did you start in? March? February. February. No, March, 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 April, May. Yeah, March. Right. So I took over as editor-in-chief in the January issue. Uh, and then in the March issue, you started writing the Moto Life column. And uh, I know you've had columns in many magazines over the years, Cycle World, um, uh, others. So you've been in the industry for a while. Give us a little bit of your backstory. Well, I'm sort of uh, an accidental journalist because I was uh, sort of minding my own business working as a museum director in upstate New York at a, uh, just a regional history museum, but it also had a laboratory in the backyard where sound film was invented. And, and that had been kept a secret. So I was doing lots of restoration projects and trying to bring that laboratory out to the public to, to learn about, because it's a huge uh, international bit of history that's been lost. And at the same time, I was road racing motorcycles. In, in my mid-30s, I, I first went road racing, wanted to do endurance races. And um, the, the, my, my board of directors who I worked for thought the racing stuff was a little crazy, but the guy works like a maniac, so let's just let him go. You know? and, uh, and then I realized racing that I'd had some thoughts I'd never read about. And so I, I wrote a, a story about panic, what panic this is why we panic how to avoid panic pointing out that road racers don't panic you know and and it, basically panic is not having the answer to the question you're asking when things go bad and road racers always have the answer um and as you probably know they're always you know no matter how bad it is they're like oh i got this i can save it <laughs> well i you know i've never been a road racer but i didn't think i had the nerves for it you know it's the focus and the ability to basically compartmentalize your fear you know like i said deal with panic uh I've had plenty of oh shit moments on the road and even on racetracks at press launches. So uh, yeah, it takes a, a certain level of uh, discipline or a personality to be able to handle that pressure in those moments. Yeah. You over time, especially racing, you learn um, well, road race 
investing is all about anticipation. You, you are looking as far down the road as you can look and, and anticipating what's going to happen next. If you're looking at where you are now, you know, forget it. And so um, that was the first thing I wrote and the first thing I got published. I sent it to one magazine and they rejected it. And I sent it to a second magazine and they printed it. And, and who, that was it. Where, who, where, yeah. What magazine and when was that? I sent it to Cycle World who rejected it. You know, I had to go right to the top. <laughs> and then uh, I sent it to Motorcyclist. Don't tell them they were second best, okay? And uh, they printed it. It was when Nick Einach was still there. And he's who I dealt with through the whole thing. And so uh, there you go. I was like, wow. And, and then uh, never rejected again, which is, which is pretty cool. And, and then immediately I went and started sport rider magazine where my second uh, contribution and third contribution were, were printed. So, and then uh, to make this way too long already story short, <laughs> I took another job at a boutique, uh, a distributor of a boutique brand of motorcycles and that didn't work out after five months and I found myself in upstate New York in the cold in the winter without a job. And then I heard the sport writer was looking for uh, an associate editor. And I'm like, take me to the promised land. <laughs> Great. So that's what late nineties, probably. 1997. Ah, yeah. Okay. I remember those early days. That was actually about when I started to get into writing. I started in my mid twenties. I was in graduate school in Pennsylvania and looking for an escape from the grind. And uh, I somehow thought motorcycles would be the answer. And I guess it was. So. Well, the wonderful discovery of becoming a moto journalist and don't tell anybody it's, it's not a job, it's a lifestyle. And so <clears throat> I, you know, I've seen much of the world because of motorcycles. Now I've been on racetracks like you, you know, uh, in foreign countries and, um, motorcycling has been good to me. Um, even though it's, it's really risky, but that's, uh, that's part of what I love about it. And so I, I've taken huge risks and, uh, you know, at Bonneville trying to set a land speed record over 200 miles an hour, the bike I was on, the engine blew at about 198 miles an hour. Ooh. And, um, but I had my fingers on the clutch lever. So it, I pulled it in immediately. And then after coasting for, few hundred yards i'm thinking well what if i let the clutch out maybe the engine's okay now and i realized no don't do that and it, it had blown out the front engine mount you know when the, when the rod came out of the engine but you so, no injuries you you know coasted to a stop you didn't come off the bike coasted forever <laughs> nothing to run you into don't wanna, you don't want to use brakes much at bonneville yeah. you know it's, it's like yeah, it's and it, it looks and feels like the frosting on a wedding cake. And that's about how much traction it gives you. So that's why they give you a mile before you even get to the timing lights. Because you've, you've, you, if you try to launch hard, you're just, you're, you're not going anywhere. You're, you're just, just going to spin. Yeah. Yeah. So, but the weird thing in Bonneville about oiling your rear tire rather than it causing a lack of traction, it increases your traction because the hot oil melts the salt crystals onto the tire. Huh. So you end up with this crusted tire, which, you know, 
probably, I mean, I didn't have a, a, any engine to accelerate from, but it certainly didn't have any less traction. I went to the Bonneville speed trials in 2008 and, um, uh, that was an impressive experience. You know, like it's everybody set up, you know, in these pop-up tents and trailers and so forth. And you can't really see the, the run because it's so far away, but, uh, it's, it's a pretty cool experience just to know how fast they're going. And if you've got binoculars, you can really see what's going on out there, but I've never run on the salt and, uh, it doesn't really sound like something I would aspire to do. Um, though I do understand some people, once you've done it, 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 you get that kind of, there can be that salt addiction. People just want to go back and try a little bit harder, go a little bit faster, do it, you know, set a record in, a, in an obscure class, whatever it might be. <laughs> well, for me, you got to be shooting for over 200, you know, and so the, the people go 300 or 400, especially on motorcycles. I'm like, wow, 200 slow, but at 200, it's, it's actually, um, it's a violent experience, I'd have to say, and it is addictive. It is, um, I desperately wanted to go back. And my adventure at Bonneville was way more adventurous than it was supposed to be. The day before the engine blew, I got caught in a crosswind, um, an 18 mile an hour crosswind. And I didn't realize that I, th I thought the fairing had come loose or something because I'm pulling on the handlebars to get the bike to stand up straight. Um, when you, as you know, when you get caught in a crosswind on a motorcycle, the motorcycle leans into it, you know, and everything's cool. When you're at Bonneville on the salt, you have such little traction, the wind actually blows the motorcycle over. Ah. And so I was, you know, I, couldn't figure out what the hell was going on. I'm trying to get the motorcycle to stand back up again. And, um, I, you know, the RPMs were going up and down. So I knew I was losing traction, but I had really good numbers. And I'm like, I, I might have the record. So I didn't let off the throttle, which might not be a good idea, but I survived it. And, um, the best part of Bonneville and uh, I, I, I've been confirmed this by uh, someone who's been to Bonneville over and over and over. Doug, 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 used, Doug Myers used to go there on a Kawasaki, always on a Kawasaki trying to break the record. And um, when I said to him, you know, it's the best part of Bonneville. He, he said, yeah, after the run. And I'm like, yes, yes. That's exactly what I was going to say. Because you, you go through such violence for what's well, five miles. So what's that like? two and a half minutes, <laughs> two minutes. And then when you get to the end, as you, as you uh, were speaking of, there's nobody there. You're all alone on this salt bed under a blue sky with no horizon between them. It's, it's so weird. And everything is quiet and it's just you. And you went from such intensity to that. It's beautiful. It's just beautiful. Well, I'm also there. I imagine, you know, with riding, with risk, with anything, it's like that is part of the exhilaration. There's some fear mixed in with it. There's a lot of, you know, uh, adrenaline. But then once you come through it, there's also that sense of relief. So I'm sure that it's like, hey, I, I did it, but I also made it through to the other side. <laughs> you know? Yeah, know yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, and, and the project I set down like 10 years ago, I was writing a book about risk and why people um, like motorcycle road racers risk their lives essentially just for fun and sport because it fascinated me. 
when I was a kid is when Nicky Lotta had his terrible crash and was his ear was burned off. He was so badly scarred in a Formula One car. And four weeks later, he's back in a car racing again. I'm like, what is wrong with this guy? So really, when I went road racing, I, I was trying to answer that question. While other racers are making notes of, you know, where to turn in, where to break, and so on, I'm writing about how I feel emotionally and mentally and with what I'm dealing with, which, which wasn't a good plan for someone trying to race. <laughs> so uh, at Bonneville, you didn't hit the 200-mile mark, or did you? No, no, I failed. 199 eight i think it was (laughs) and it's funny i was telling these guys about it you know back home and they're like wow jones went 200 miles an hour bonneville i'm like no no you can't round up can't round round up up in bonneville (laughs) 199.8 they're like no it's 200 i'm like no not how it works but so i said in the intro uh you set a 202.247 mile per hour land speed record at maxton air force base that's not on the salt. That's on what? It's on a runway? Yeah, that's on a runway, and it's a different show because you don't have five miles available. You know, you don't have five miles available anywhere on the East Coast. You know, yeah. you got to get to a desert for that. So it's about two miles, and you from a dead start, it's one mile to the timing lights, and, and it's the speed you're going when you cross through the timing lights. Okay. Whereas at Bonneville, it's the speed you go for a mile. And it's four different, it's four different times. Yeah. And what is it averaged over those several different measurements? Is that how it works? No, you have four different opportunities. I see. So for each mile, you have a result. I see. Gotcha. And, um, the first mile of the five is, is just your acceleration mile. And so it's not time, but, and so at Maxton, the thing about it's an old, it's an old airport and they, they poured sand in the cracks to make it smoother, but there's a, there's a kink (laughs) uh, like 200 yards after the start. And, um, so you, you got some speed building already. And it's like, I'm going through a kink where someone poured sand in the cracks. I'm like, what? <laughs> and, um, and then you got a mile to, to stop, you know, and turn around, which is, which is plenty of room because you're on pavement. Right. Um, and it's, so it's really bumpy. And um, yeah, that's where I went 202.247. Ah. And the cool thing about it, the cool thing about that event was uh, before I did that, I went 200 point something. And then I came back and stopped at the timing lights where my crew chief was. And he said, well, you went 200. And I'm like, oh, it's not, it's not clean. It's not over. It's not like 201. And he goes, well, you think you got it in you to do it again? I'm like, yeah, I made some mistakes. Let's do it again. So we did it again and I nailed the 202. And what I didn't know but he did is that if you do a run, it erases the run before, unless you go through tech. So I could have thrown it all away right there, uh. but he believed in me. And, and so here's the thing. I, I didn't get to what's the interesting thing. <laughs> I knew I was going faster. I felt it in every way I heard it. And that's weird because, you know, if I'm on a bike going 150, 
or 175, I can't tell the difference. So between 200 and 202, it was a totally different experience. Wow. I'm like, wow, that's crazy. I never, yeah, it's like everything was different. So at Maxton, so at Bonneville to have your time uh, be official, you have to run it both directions, right? And it's the average of the two. Do you, at Maxton, it was just a one-shot deal and it would be certified? Yeah, it's a one-shot deal, and they certify it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, with the ECTA, you know, and, and as you know, at, at Bonneville, it's the SCTA, um, and yeah, you have to run in both directions to make sure you didn't earn it with a tailwind. And I think it's the average of the two, but I'm not going to say that with certainty. I don't. I don't know that they both have to be at the threshold you need, but the right, average. Right. The okay. Two. That's, yeah, that's my understanding. I, I don't keep up with it a lot, but I did know you had to run both directions. And so that can be part yeah. of the challenge. So, so um, you and I, we met, or like I said, I started working at Ryder in 2008. And uh, one of the, not. yeah, is that um, you have this book about uh, untold tales of bad behavior. And so I know that my first press launch, you weren't at my first press launch, but that was one where it was the sort of an eye-opening experience. I could get into that later. But one of the things that I mentioned in um, a column is that one of my best memories of going on a press launch with you is when you worked for Pirelli and you hosted the Angel ST launch in Asheville, North Carolina. It's a beautiful place to ride. Uh, we got rained on, of course, but you took us to Hendersonville and you were living in North Carolina at the time? Is that true? Yeah, I moved to North Carolina into the mountains. And um, is that the first time we were in an intro together where I had gone to the dark side and was doing the marketing rather it, than being a journalist? It might be. But okay. what I enjoyed is the stop at the cemetery where uh, Billy Leon and Benny Lloyd McCrary were, were buried, the world's yeah. heaviest twins. Because yeah. as a kid, you know, I used to look at the Guinness Book of World Records all the time. And I will always, it's like seared in my mind, a memory of that photo of them on they're on the two little Hondas. They've got their matching outfits with their cowboy hats and their plaid pants and their shirts. And they're each over 700 pounds. And I've seen that in so many copies of the Guinness Book. And you took us to their grave. They're buried next to each other in Henderson, North Carolina. So I thought that was a very cool little, I don't know, bit of bizarre trivia to go see that in person. Yeah, I always like to add something to an intro that's a surprise. And um, another intro I did up there, I, I, I went into a coffee shop and there were little paintings, like six by three by six. And the painting was either of a little baby chicken or of a skull. And there were like a hundred of them and they're all for sale. They're, they're all framed and they're all for sale. So I got a hold of the artist and I said, hey, can you paint me a picture of a scooter? And then when I was working at Kimco, we stopped at the coffee shop and I didn't know where it was, but I told him just hang it somewhere on the wall and we'll discover it when we're there. No, nobody noticed it. <laughs> <laughs> a little too clever for your own good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, so let's talk about your, your book. You just published a book. Uh, I know it's available on Amazon. We'll have links to everything in the show notes. Uh, it is called The Bad Editor, Collected Columns and Untold Tales of Bad Behavior. So tell us about your book. Yeah, I, um, I started putting together a collection of my columns, you know, because uh, as you know, motorcycle journalism is a dying profession. 
um, except for uh, you and me. I was about to say, man, don't 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 write <laughs> the epitaph just yet. <laughs> no, the Renaissance. The we are part of the Renaissance. It's going to be great. Um, so I thought, you know, well, what can I do? And and I've always owned all of my columns, even though I've written for all different publications. That's the one thing I've owned. Uh, what I wrote on assignment, you know, the magazine notes. So I started putting a collection together, and then I. I remembered that, you know, over the years, I've been keeping a running list of incidents of bad behavior in the motorcycle industry. So I told a friend that after I do this book, I'm going to do a book about bad behavior. Um, actually, the friend was Melissa Pearson. And um, her being smarter than me, she said, oh, let me get this straight. You're going to do a book that people may or may not want. And then later, you're going to do a book that people will want. Does that make <laughs> sense? And I'm like, uh, yeah, never mind. <laughs> so that's why this contains both of those. And um, it's only, you know, there's like, there's 30 of the collected stories and there's 19 of the stories of bad behavior. And I wanted to release this a year ago. Um, but as I mentioned to you, otherwise that the other place that uh, it, it had too much anger in it. And I'm like, no, 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 I want this to be fun. So a lot of things happened in my life and I had to put it down for a couple of years. And then I came back, I rewrote it. I got rid of all the anger. I got rid of, uh, uh, there were a couple of places where I talked about great things I did. I'm like, no, 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 this is bad behavior. Get rid of that. <laughs> so it's all, I really threw myself under the bus. Um, and um, if, if it's popular, I, I got more. <laughs> right on. Well, I know this is the point where the podcast host is supposed to say, oh, I read your book and I really enjoyed it, but I haven't seen it yet. I know the, the print copies, I'll get one at some point. So maybe I'll have you back on the show once I've read it and I'll, I'll pick it apart or I'll ask you questions about specific tales of bad behavior. But um, I do know that, uh, like I said, you, you, the, way, the way that you said that you pulled all the anger out of it is that, and you threw yourself under the bus. To me, the most entertaining writing is always when the writer has fun, like basically has, pokes fun at themselves. You know, when things work out great or you toot your own horn or puff out your own chest, most people don't enjoy that kind of reading. It's like we want to read about things not working out, people's lives falling apart. And so, you know, misery loves company sort of thing. So is that sort of how you put yourself out there? Well, that's pretty much been through my writing through my whole career. And I've done so many stupid things and so many bad things. I, I got a lot of material. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, and, and, and you're right. Self-effacing is, uh, it's great to read, you know, about, you know, and so, yeah, I, I um, and, and also I don't mind like, like my copy editor on a number of the stories, she'd write too much sharing, too much sharing, too much sharing. And I'm like, no, that's what I do. Right, right. <laughs> And, you know, it, it, it also, I think it comes out of partly when I was a kid watching kids get picked on for something stupid they did. And so I realized, you know, if I shared the stupid things I, the stupid things I do. Told you, turn your ringer off, man. <laughs> I did. I did. And I turned off the, the, um, the connection between the two. Okay. I'm gonna have to put my phone in water in the sink. <laughs> um, where was I? Oh yeah, See? yeah. I realized that it it dis it disarms people. 
you know, and, and if you if you tell everyone how stupid you are, they're like, oh, geez, how can I mock that guy? He's already he's way ahead of me on it, you know. <laughs> and, and and so it, it takes away the weapon from people. And then the other kids who like can't help themselves, right. you know, from doing stupid stuff, it makes them feel better. It makes them feel less lonely. You know, I realized like in fifth grade, whereas when I began my screwing, no, I began much earlier. <laughs> anyway, I realized by fifth grade that no matter how badly I would mess up, there was always some poor schmuck who'd mess up worse sure. and like save me, you know? And I, but I always felt bad. I'm like, thanks. Thanks for taking one for me. But that's sad. That's just sad. Yeah. But anyway, um, you know, and then you know, I like, I, I've been, uh, I've been, uh, I've had problems with life. I failed seventh grade and in, uh, in, in second grade, they sent me to an ear doctor because I would never hear when the teacher called on me um, because I was practicing my daydreaming skills, which by sixth grade, I had totally mastered. I couldn't wait to go to class so I could just sit there and daydream all day. And uh, I should have failed sixth grade, but the, but the teacher liked me because he liked my older sister who was like your perfect student, you know? And I, I got that my whole life through school. Oh, you're nothing like your sister. <laughs> Like, no, I'm not, you know, and then I, I dropped out of high school. Um, but when I dropped out of high school, I, I, I like, like, I don't know, it was like February, March. I told my parents, I go, look, I'm going to drop out of high school, get equivalency diploma, uh, go to a community college and get grades and transfer to university. It's exactly what I did. You know, I didn't drop out because I was bored to death. It was killing me, you know, plus I needed more time to do drugs. <laughs> So, uh, with like Anthony Bourdain's famous book, Kitchen Confidential, I think that reason people love that book is we all eat at restaurants and everybody wanted to know what happens in the kitchen because a lot of people have never worked in a restaurant kitchen. And so he tells this grand tale of, you know, basically like marauding pirates, essentially, you know, uh, tattooed bad boys. So I know for motorcycle enthusiasts, a lot of times people are like, what happens at motorcycle press launches? You know, we read what you put in your magazine. We see the road tests and so forth, but that's been edited. That's been sort of, you know, that's you're trying to say focus on the, the actual motorcycle. So it's the behind the scenes tales that I think people are curious about. And I know I have a few of my own tales, but is that sort of what these untold tales of bad behavior? It's not just, um, you know, it's it's motorcycle industry related. It's being doing. Things. Well, I did it. I, I wrote about both sides of it, okay? Because the what people ask me the most um, um, is what goes on at those intros. You know, do they pay you to go? Who buys everything? They really they they don't they aren't asking me. You know, are you guys a bunch of you know crazy ass drunks? They're asking what how the industry works, okay? And um, I, I go through step by step what the anatomy of a motorcycle intro and what the relationship is with uh, the brands and um, the gifts, the graft, <laughs> the travel, and and it most brands it, it's it's a it's a weird it's a very strange relationship because the advertisers are the brands that you're evaluating and so you it it, it it it's a conflict of interest it's a total conflict of interest what are you going to do and when i got in the industry and 
And uh, I was sat down by my editor to, and being told what goes on in an intro, I was like, I was shocked and disappointed. And uh, um, my, my father was like a very, very, very moral person. If he found $20 in a parking lot, he'd ask the first person he came to if, he, if they lost $20, you know. He shouldn't have been that specific, but that was. <laughs> but anyway, um, I had to I had to figure it out, you know, and realize I'm not going to change this industry. This this is what it is, you know. But I'm going to take notes. <laughs> but you know, and and um, and then one of the stories is when I found out where the line between harmless graft and getting a check for five hundred dollars is, you know. And I sent the check back. Um, <laughs> Nobody ever sent me a check. <laughs> I know that's the thing is I've read so in so many motorcycle magazines, especially when it's the results of a comparison test. They're like, you must be, you know, on Honda's payroll or something. And like, trust me, like nobody's getting rich doing this. Nobody's on anybody's payroll. It's not like being part of the mob, you know. But, you know, there are at press launches, you typically stay at a nice hotel. There's going to be nice meals. You know, the drinks are typically paid for. Though those people that I know that work, that review both motorcycles and cars, they often say, oh, man, if you've never been to a car launch, motorcycle launches are for paupers. I mean, they're basically, right. that's what the proletariat do. You know, car launches right. on a totally different level because the car, the automotive industry is so much bigger. So, yeah, cars, cars is, uh, yeah, you're royalty. Yeah. <laughs> if you're yeah. a moto journalist in the car world. Yeah, it's, yeah, it just, it makes it makes what goes on in motorcycling look like absolutely entirely harmless. But to continue answering that question, I also wrote about how most manufacturers are, are really well behaved in this relationship. They have to do what everyone in the industry does. Otherwise, you know, the journalists are like, Where, where's my gift? Did you get a gift? I didn't get a gift, you know? And so, but, but there was one manufacturer, I think things have changed now. Um, oh, and I don't name names or brands, you know, because I, I'm, I, this is not a spite. It's out of fun. And but there was one brand that just just rode you, you know, and wanted worked you over. You know, if you at an intro said anything critical about the machine, well, then they had to, st you know, start arguing with you about, you know, how you're wrong. And um, so that that was a bit rough. But then to get to what you brought out. I also write about all the bad things as journalists that we do with intros. And um, some of it, you know, like with that one manufacturer who pushed too hard, my, a lot of my bad behavior was directed at them. It, it was my way of pushing back, which, which really was a bad business decision on my part <laughs> because it might've led to getting blacklisted. I've heard that some people- yeah, exactly. Have to read the book. So, I mean, that's the thing about, you know, I've said this to other people I know, like, uh, when you say, oh, man, I'm really sick of going to Spain or something like that. Everybody's like, oh, you know, how can you complain about something like that? And what one of the things that in terms of the logistics of a press launch that most people don't understand when you say, oh, I went to Spain six times last year and like, oh, wow, that sounds like a jet set lifestyle. It's like, no, I flew 24 hours to get there. I was on the ground for 36 hours and I flew another 24 hours to get home. So I had 48 hours of travel to have 36 hours on the ground. So it's literally often a day and a half. You arrive one night, you ride the next day, 
you have dinner and you're on like 6 a.m you know shuttle call like you're hardly there enough to even get upside down with your jet lag and so it is a lot of time in airports airplanes taxi cabs shuttle buses and there's nothing glamorous about that part of the job you know and we almost always fly coach there are rare exceptions where you fly you know a japanese manufacturer takes you to japan they often will fly you business class or if you're flying a very long distance for certain uh press launches but you're typically coached so you're in a small you know a seat you've got it's not luxurious accommodations and that's how you travel yes and uh you know i've gone through tsa and um like i'm going to spain how long are you gonna be there two days and they're like what because <laughs> it makes no sense why are you flying to spain for two days I'm like well it's what i usually do <laughs> but um <laughs> it's yeah I mean, like you said you know you're usually flying coach and sometimes it's business class or sometimes you know now it's that comfort coach which is way worth the money well if you have that kind of money i don't um but i i flew coach once and uh well first of all i was in la and it was delta so so i had to fly to atlanta in order to fly to spain and i'm like I know what the world looks like. It's actually round. It's not flat. And that's <laughs> Atlanta is not between LA and Spain, you know, by any, any stretch, you know? So the next flight from Atlanta to Spain, I'm sitting next to a woman with her two-year-old child on her lap for eight hours. Oof. And the plane was full and the, uh, I got no help from the uh, flight attendants. And the plane landed in Madrid and then went on to Barcelona and the woman got off in Madrid with her child. And I received a, a spontaneous standing ovation from all the people sitting around me. For your talents. <laughs> You're a saint. <laughs> so I mentioned earlier that, um, so my very first press launch, I also won't name names or manufacturers or anything, but you know, when I was hired to be writer's road test editor uh, back in 08, uh, I hadn't worked in the industry, so I didn't know anything about press launches. I wasn't a former racer. I was a number cruncher and, uh, somehow talked my way into the job. I must have, you know, sprinkled, uh, pixie dust in Mark Tuttle's eyes uh, when he hired me. But one of my first press launches was, um, one where Mark said, Hey, you're going to a press launch. Here are the ground rules. Rule number one, don't crash. Rule number two, see rule number one. And that's pretty much true for anybody that goes to press launches. And so I go to a press launch and uh, the, I don't know any of the people that are there. I know them by name because they wrote for other magazines that I had read and familiar with. And we're riding in the mountains uh, and the, the road is wet and it's foggy. And the, this is before a lot of traction control and things like that. And I, my skill level on new motorcycles, you know, I just, I don't want to damage this bike or anything. But there were guys on that press launch that every opportunity were doing a wheelie or a stoppie because they're always trying to impress one another. Um, we were on a pretty famous road that a couple people got a speeding ticket. And um, that was the first day. The second day, uh, we were on a, a similar, the similar route on some different motorcycles. And I made the, uh, I broke rule number one. 
I crashed. I crashed in my very first press launch. And fortunately, <laughs> I, fortunately I did not get hurt, but um, I was riding with the, the, the staff, you know, uh, at the end of the, the back of the group with my head held low and my, my tail between my legs, feeling great sense of shame. I thought that maybe I actually am going to get myself fired from this really cool job I just landed. And as it turned out, other members of the group ahead of me, um, there was somebody who may have been exceeding uh, the speed limit, may have been passing on a double yellow. These are, you know, uh, this is what I've heard. I wasn't there when it happened. But uh, a number of people where uh, <laughs> there was a roadblock involved, uh, there were many other tickets involved, and one person was handcuffed and hauled off to jail. And so uh, and I was like, is this what's, this is what a press launch is all about? I mean, I was picked up uh, from the airport in an actual stretch limousine. That's the first and only time it's ever happened. I stayed in a luxurious, you know, hotel and there was, you know, champagne in the refrigerator. And I thought, well, geez, this is going to be, you know, I, can I live up to this sort of lifestyle? I'm, I'm not really that kind of guy. But uh, anyway, it was a uh, eye-opening experience. And fortunately, I didn't get hurt. Fortunately, I didn't get fired. I've made plenty of other mistakes. But um, yeah, press launches, sometimes things go wrong through accident. Sometimes things uh, go bad because people uh, are, you know, behave badly. Sometimes all of it. <laughs> which makes for an excellent press launch yeah a couple of things that uh that you brought to mind for me is um when you mentioned you crashed i laughed and <laughs> rather than oh i hope you were all right you know which is what normal people do but you know road racers and moto journalists it, it's this is that's the lifestyle you know and if someone's not hurt we laugh <laughs> <laughs> like they say, you know, some people say it's like, well, if you don't crash every now and then, you're not trying hard enough. Yeah. 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 And then, uh, well, I don't remember the other thing, but um, th there was an intro uh, that I went to. Oh, yeah. I didn't crash until this is what I was going to say. I didn't crash until uh, maybe my third international intro. <laughs> and it was on a racetrack in the rain. And, and, this is this is also what people don't realize about the lifestyle is is uh, you're treated like a prima donna. You become a prima donna because who doesn't want to be a prima donna? You know it's great, but you show up in a foreign country at a racetrack and it's pouring rain. You put on your leathers and you get on the motorcycle and you go out on the bike. You don't go. Oh, I'm gonna get wet or what? You know, do you got rain tires? You know, no, no. You go do it and. Uh, there were six of us Americans, three of us crashed. There were, uh, I think, eight, right, eight journalists who crashed you know, throughout the day. And the rain never let up. We didn't have rain tires. <laughs> and, yeah. I, and I'm constantly made fun of because I crashed going in a straight line. It's because my, you know, I lost the front while braking. Right. But uh, it's, um, you know, and then you laugh. And, uh, oh, they took me over to medical center. I had an abrasion here and I couldn't straighten out my left arm for like six months. But other than that, I was fine. And uh, as soon as I got out of the medical center at the track, I was back in the garages waiting for them to fix a the bike. There was another racer there who had just crashed. So they were fixing two bikes <laughs> and um, got on a bike and went back out. Oh, yeah. And then they didn't call it a day until... I, I was in a group of riders 
And I see up at the next turn, this bike is doing cartwheels. And then they, they threw the red flag and they're like, all right, we're done. We've had enough. Yeah, yeah. I think they yeah. ran out of parts. I mean, <laughs> the, the garage next to us, those guys, there was not a moment they were not repairing a bike. It was just amazing. So maybe there are more than eight crashes. Well, I, don't well, you, I mean, you make a good point is that, you know, these press launches, and this is, of course, pre-pandemic, you know, I haven't been overseas in over a year, and it's kind of nice to take a break, but um, is that these press launches are planned months in advance. They've had to sometimes reserve a, a, or rent a racetrack. Uh, they've got a, a, or a ride route on a scenic road on the coast of Spain or Portugal or Italy or wherever it is. And so these things are planned way far in advance. And if you happen to show up and there's bad weather, well, that doesn't do a lot for your photos, which is one of the key things that you need to bring back is photography and possibly video. But you're right. It's like, well, there, you can't come back tomorrow. You can't come back two days from now. You're in Spain. Right. And you're flying home tomorrow. So today's your day. And maybe wave one had good weather and you got rain, but you get to ride in the rain and you get to make the most of it. Uh, and there may be caveats in your review. It's like, well, I couldn't really get on it because it was wet the whole time. But again, it's not a fair weather riding scenario. You have, you're basically there on assignment and you're not going to stay in your hotel room and be like, oh, well, you guys can go ride. I'm just going to stay in the hotel and read because it's raining. Like you just can't do that. No, no. And, and the thing is riding a motorcycle on a racetrack in the rain on dot tires, you learn absolutely zero about that motorcycle yeah yeah because <laughs> you can't accelerate as it might you can't brake as it might you can't corner as it, you, you nothing nothing it's just out of respect for the industry you know and this that's your job you you don't you don't even you don't hesitate you don't give it a second thought you're just like okay and put your leathers on you know go do it and you know except you're thinking man i wish i'd brought a rain suit <laughs> that can be an issue. So I had a friend one time who we were doing a five bike sport touring comparison test. And that's a lot of bodies to get on motorcycles. And so the way that comparison tests work is you typically go out for a day or two. Um, you would take a photographer with you and you've got to do all of all the photos of all, you know, it can be two bikes, it could be three bikes. In this case, it was five bikes. So I needed a friend of mine to ride a motorcycle and he came along and what most people don't realize when they look at photos in a magazine, they think, oh, look, they just rode through that corner and they took a great photo is depending on the photographer. And in this case, I'll point out that Kevin Wing, who we work with most often, likes to really get the best possible light, the best, you know, tack sharp images. And so there are many, many, many times that I have ridden through the exact same corner 45 times in a row basically back and forth and you're doing U-turn after U-turn on a sometimes a narrow road, sometimes a gravel road, sometimes there's sand in the corner, sometimes the sun is in your eyes, is that to get that shot, sometimes you've got to do this over and over and over and over again. And the friend that came along with me on the, on the comparison test is like, hey man, I ride for fun. This is too much like work. Don't invite me back. <laughs> so <laughs> That's funny. But yeah, you, you, if, there are, if there are six of you at an intro, that's a really small intro. There's often 10 or 12, and you are brought to a place where they're gonna do photos, and you all line up, and like you say, you go, you go past, and, and then you turn around, you wait for everyone to do their passes, and you don't want another motorcycle in your pass, so you gotta wait like 20 seconds between each, each rider going, and then you do your U-turn, you're waiting for everyone to get back, 
and then you go back in the other direction so you get a photo with the bike lean the other way you know or or it was leaned from the inside now it's from the outside you know and then um fran coon who's a excellent excellent photographer i don't think he does for magazines anymore i think he just works with manufacturers he would always be up there you know you do you do so many passes you're just you're you're over you're hot because you've been just sitting there on a hot bike and then he holds his hand up with four fingers you know i'll just i just say you're like okay just four more so you do you do three more and you come by again and then he holds his hand up with four fingers, you know, just four Mars. Like, oh, geez. <laughs> and what what I've what I've stressed to, to to someone who's been new in the industry is that whenever the photographer's there, you're no longer a motorcycle journalist. You're a model. And whatever the photographer says, you do. I've been at intros with some, some neophyte, and he does one pass. He's done. He, he he parks the bike and he takes his helmet off. No, I got my photo. <laughs> nope. And as you know, if, if we had come back to our editors, you know, with one photo or, you know, whatever, that would have been it. That would have been the end of our career, you know? And um, I was amazed. And I, I tried telling one guy once, I'm like, no, you, you really, you really need to do more. But I also, I was in an intro with a neophyte photographer and we did one pass and then everyone was done and I came by again and he was walking away. He's like, Oh, what? there's a bike coming. <laughs> yeah. You never get it in one pass. Almost never. That's the, yeah. Yeah, I agree. It's, it can go both ways. Like there's really at a press launch, you've obviously got to, you know, balance that you've got a lot of people there and you've got a schedule to keep to and so forth. But I, I will stay late. I will do more passes. Anytime they say you want to do more is you never know what circumstances might change or shift it can start raining. It can be cloudy. There can be a car passing by on a public road is that you need to get every opportunity to get as many photos as possible. Cause once you get back home, you really don't know what you're going to end up with until you actually see them. So, uh, and I have been in situations, I'm sure you have too, where you just don't end up with enough photos to choose from. It really limits your options to, to do a layout for the magazine and tell your story. And, uh, you know, and really I've often told people, it's like, the only reason I go to Spain is to get photos. I was like, you know, because you can get a bike at home and test it and, and write your own story and so forth. But it's to be in a different environment. It's to be have a different photographer. It's uh, the, the only thing I have to bring home are good photos. If you don't bring home good photos, you can write your review, but then you don't have the visual component to support it. And, and every manufacturer understands that and, and makes a you know, a wonderful orchestrated effort to make sure we get the photos done. But I have to say, there's one major, major manufacturer that I was on an intro with um, not too long ago, not, not, you know, way back in the, not too long ago, leave it at that. And I can't say where it is. There are a number of things that'll give away the brand, but it was a wonderful luxury vacation. And we had maybe two photo stops and, um, I asked the photographer later, I said, well, you know, what about the other photographer? What's he got? And he goes, oh, no, he was a videographer. He wasn't taking pictures. I'm like, what? And then the, set, the afternoon of the second day of writing, we we're all going to meet and they're going to do photos. They, they canceled it because, I don't know, we were having too much fun with the fun stuff. And, and I was just like, 
I've never, I'd never seen it happen before where the manufacturer just sort yeah. of blew it away. Wow. Yeah. The life, the lifestyle stuff or the, you know, add on experiences, uh, you know, th those can be enjoyable if you've got time for them, but only if you've kind of gotten your homework done, only if you've gotten the stuff that you need, yeah. because you know that you have an editor to go home to who is going to basically put you on the hot seat and like, Hey, you didn't bring back what I needed you to bring back. So if you're getting paid as a freelancer, if you're on staff, it's like, it's not about you going there for a vacation. You can have fun, but you got to make sure you get the work done. You know, it's like, you've got to be able to do both. So, so, so you have been in the industry for a long time. I know you have other interests. You uh, do some work in, in philosophy. Um, so you're a very much a Renaissance man. You've got multiple motorcycles that you own in various places and you're doing some restorations. Uh, what's, <laughs> what's keeping you occupied right now, Peter? Well, su surprisingly, uh, the marketing for this book is, is, is taking a lot of time. There, there's a lot of things to do. Um, and, and prior to that, surprisingly, the, my graphics guy laying the book out, I had to be way more involved than I, than I thought I would be. So that's taken up a lot of time. Um, what else am I doing now? I, uh, geez, I don't even know what the next project is. I just, I, you know, um, it's, uh, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I'm too wrapped up in this book. Well, you yeah. know, here's, well, the thing. here's the thing. On, on May 1st, um, I'm going to be in Atlanta doing a book signing at Pops Coffee Company. And so I've had to get back to my art director. I got to get posters made. Um, just, you know, before you called, I was I was wrapping up uh, promotional items I have to bring um, because I made I made match matchbooks for the nice. book. And um yeah, I had this non-motorcyclist person I talked to that I was doing a book, stickers. Yeah. And I mentioned, he's a marketing person. I mentioned I got I got stickers. And he's like, stickers? Who the hell wants stickers? And I'm like, yeah, you don't know motorcyclists. Exactly. Everybody wants stickers. <laughs> yeah. I love that you have matchbooks, though. That's great. I still have a collection of matchbooks that I oh, used yeah. to get them I'll, from every I'll restaurant. Send you one. I'm sending you uh, the book tomorrow. Okay, great. Well, I look forward to reading it. Yeah. The, they uh, well maybe Monday because they arrive you know tomorrow before eight p.m. or something. So yes. it's just it's weird. It's self-published and nothing happened for two weeks. I, I I was actually on the phone with them, going yesterday. Where's my books? And then in the afternoon, it they I got the note. Oh, they ship. They're gonna be there. Well, it was two days ago. They're gonna be there Saturday. I'm like, wow. Okay, that's pretty cool. Um, and then I have to send them out to all the journalists um to see if they'll mention the thing um which is why i can't even think what i'm doing next but anyway to get to go, to go back for a second to the philosophy stuff that whole thing about risk that i was chasing which i actually wrote a whole book about it but and finished it but i i didn't get back to editing it um it, which I, I will one day and um that led me to uh i i quoted a philosopher in the book jean paul Sartre. And so I didn't know if I really understood and was quoting him right. So I found a philosopher who's a bit of a motorhead and he had the blurb on the back of a, a book of philosophy. And so um, he's like, yeah, I'll, I'll read it over. So he read the chapter and, and he made notes and I could see he just sort of drifted away as the thing went on. I'm like, yeah, he's just, he's like, this guy's so far off. I can't even, you know, I don't want to waste my time. So, but then we started a conversation and, and I realized all the mistakes I made, I reread the material and, and then he said, well, 
okay, I, I understand what you're doing. And this is a really cool project. This is a great premise you're working with. How would you like to uh, uh, write an abstract and see about doing a presentation at a philosophy conference? And I'm like, wow, I, I was just so honored he asked. So I did. It was in Montreal at a university. Well, they're always at universities. You know, it, it's it's a it's a peer-reviewed conference in order to get in. And and my my paper was the first one the first morning. So which is probably good because I had no idea what went on. And and I had a really good crowd. And they're just all sitting there smiling and nodding. And I'm like, are they drunk or what? <laughs> <laughs> and the paper was just hugely well received. I was shocked. And, and one of the philosophers said later, said, you know, we, we like to invite people from outside the field, you know, look at things from a different direction. And it usually falls apart. They don't really understand the material. And, and uh, she said, but no, you, this, you nailed it. This is great. And then a year later, the this professor got a hold of me and he said, well, you know, there's another conference coming up. You got another paper? And I go, yeah, yeah, I do. And that, again, I just, I knocked them out. And, um, and uh, one of the professors is like, no motorcycles, two papers. What are you doing? Who are you? What's going on? So I've done eight papers and one of them is published in a philosophy journal, the, nice. uh, the uh, Sartre Studies International Journal. So, uh, which, which means I'm not just wasting space or there to humor, you know, there for a laugh. <laughs> well, you know, having been in graduate school, having gone to academic conferences and published things in academic journals, those were more of a social science nature, but, um, you know, that you have done writing for consumer, consumer enthusiast publications that you've developed a voice, you've had columns that probably informs your academic writing to where there are academic writers who can write really well. Most of them cannot. They're very good at what they do, but communicating them can really get so clogged up with jargon and so forth that if you're able to write like, hey, I want my paper to be an enjoyable thing to read as well as be accurate in terms of the arguments I'm making or whatever. So I'm sure that there are people at those conferences that really appreciate having a fresh voice rather than you can get very, you know, there is an academic approach to things just like there's a magazine, motorcycle magazine approach to things. And so I'm sure that's a fresh voice for a lot of those folks. So good for you. Well, I, I get to break the rules as what you're saying, you know, it, uh, um, hints to. Um, you're not trying but, to get tenure, so. <laughs> right, right. And, 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 you know, everybody else gets something. They get, they get tenure, they get a job, they fulfill their graduating, you know, requirements, you know, their, their degree requirements. I get nothing. I'm just wasting people's time and space. Um, and, and then to be published, someone needs to be published. And I took that spot. I, I feel slightly guilty. <laughs> so uh, I'm sure you're familiar with it. I have only looked at a couple of uh, articles in there, but there is an International Journal of Motorcycle Studies. Are you familiar with it? Yeah, I've, I found it years ago, but I never really pursued it. Yeah, well, I mean, not necessarily to contribute to, but uh, it's something I've wanted to go look at and see what is it that the editor of that publication, uh, you know, what is it they're, they're approaching? Is this, is it mostly philosophical? One of the pieces I did read uh, was uh, philosophical, but um, I'm curious, like, what is the academic studies that would intersect with the motorcycle industry? So, uh, you know, like I said, I have that academic background. It, you know, something that I pretty much walked away from. It just wasn't really my, my cup of tea. 
But um, yeah, there are people out there that are writing scholarly journals that have to do with motorcycles. And so, uh, and not just from an engineering standpoint. So that's, that's something that, like I said, uh, whenever I find the time, uh, <laughs> the extra time, I figured I would go look up online to figure out what kind of articles get published in that uh, journal. of. of yeah, we should both go back and take a look at that. Yeah, yeah. And, and also what you said, um, I've been chasing the uh, the argument about free will, whether or not we have free will. And and one of the professors, um, he, he's, he's been on one of the, you know, president, vice president, you know, in, in one of the officers in the, in the organization also. Um, he's pushing me to do the book because he said, you, you, you write for a mainstream audience. You know how to do that. that that's not what we do. Right. So you do need to write this book. So that is one of my future projects that I couldn't remember a couple of minutes ago. <laughs> but my more immediate future project is to finish a graphic novel um, that um, I've, I've got like the last scene to do and that's it. And um, I'm really thrilled about that. Who's, are you, you're not doing the illustrations, you're doing just the- No, the, I'm not the, doing the illustration. Um, hopefully the, the woman who illustrated the cover of my book will do it. Which is very cool illustration. I've seen her Instagram channel. It's, what's it? It's, it's N-A-T-A underscore Duke, Natasha Duke, but it's not a Duke. Yeah, not a, not a underscore Duke. Yeah, yeah. N-A-T-A underscore Duke. Yeah, she's, it's wild stuff. And it's evolved over the, you know, geez, what, two years plus before, yeah. since I've had her do this cover. And, um. Is it a motorcycle graphic novel or is it on a totally different subject? No, there's not a motorcycle in it. Um, and it's in, uh, in the writing of it, I was trying to write about too much. And so I realized I've got three books here, not one. Yeah. So then I had to stop and take all my notes and put them into three different files for what each book would be. And, and then uh, um, start over. And actually, I was in the writing of the thing I was working on, what is the third book. And the reason I, I realized I had to stop is because the third book, the ending is terminal. I knew it had to be terminal. And I'm like, well, that can't be the first book. Yeah. So I'm like, what is? So, um, yeah, and it's, it's, it's really brought together all different projects I've been working on my whole life because, you know, my, my degree is in fine art. And, and my minor is in philosophy. And so I've always been chasing the meaning of symbols and metaphors and the confusion, you know, that people have with, with what is real and, and what is metaphorical, like the Underground Railroad, you know, that when, when I'm in, working in a history museum, every time I, like with some city official or, or uh, county legislator in the basement of some old house in the, in the city, someone would say, oh, I wonder if the Underground Railroad ran through here. <laughs> like, it's, 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 not, it's, not subway. it's not subterranean. Yes. And there was no train. Yeah, I know, <laughs> I know. It really, it really, you know, metaphors confuse people and our lives are full of them. And um, <clears throat> even, you know, Bertrand Russell, <clears throat> excuse me, trying to find the, the perfect map. And it, it almost drove him crazy because there's no such thing. You will always run into conflicts and paradoxes and problems that won't work. You know, like when a, when a set is self-referential, 
you know, you get problems, all sorts of stuff. And it took him forever to realize math is not a thing. Math is a metaphor. And so they're, they're, it's no, it's not real. Forget it. <laughs> well, you are very much a Renaissance man with your, uh, you're a man of motorcycle uh, arts and letters. Uh, you know, I just have to say as the, uh, editor-in-chief of Writer for a few months. It's been a learning experience, but it's been a real pleasure to have your column, The Moto Life, uh, as part of Writer Magazine now. Uh, you and Eric Tro both are our monthly columnists, and I really appreciate that. Uh, you've been very generous with your time. We've been on, on this interview for about an hour. Uh, you've been great talking about your book and your background. I appreciate all that. Anything else you want to share with folks before we wrap things up? I wasn't there. I didn't understand the question. Just dark out. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, uh, like I said, in the show notes, we'll have a link to your uh, bad editor website uh, to where people can buy the book uh, and so forth. And uh, yeah, I hope you get it's well. Like I said, I look forward to reading it. I'm sure it will uh, you know, be an enjoyable read. I hope it's well received at these book signings and, and your efforts to promote it. So uh, I know you uh, mentioned it in your column in our May issue, which uh, we just finished up and will be coming out. Soon, so. Thank you. And um, and yeah, it's just the badeditor.com. Can't be easier. And um, I'm also, I'm sponsoring a, a mini road racer. And uh, Moto America has a mini road racing series that'll be at four events. And so I'm sponsoring the kid. And I might sponsor an actual adult road racer too. I just haven't been able to connect with one yet. But um. It's fun, and, uh, and I, I love having a column in a magazine, and uh, it's great. This is all fun. Great. Well, thanks again, Peter, and for the Writer Magazine Insider Podcast, I'm Greg Jevonstead. Thanks for listening, and keep the rubber side down.